he also says, I'd like to point out in Eke Homo, uh, his autobiography, that you shouldn't trust sick people when they're talking. So he's talking about himself. Welcome back to Jimbo Radio. This is Jimbo, and joining me for episode 12 is my buddy, Carl Nord, Nietzsche enthusiast. This is going to be an introduction into the 19th century German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. In this episode, we talk about misconceptions with Nietzsche's philosophy we discuss his famous quote, God is dead. We discuss what his politics and philosophy looks like. And we even tie into some current events. Unfortunately, I did not realize that I was mispronouncing Nietzsche's last name during the entire podcast. Please forgive me. I refer to him every single time as Nietzsche, which is not the correct pronunciation. It should be Nietzsche, more like cha-cha-chop. So please forgive me. I hope it's not too annoying. For anyone that is familiar with Nietzsche, I'd love to hear any and all feedback as to the ideas that we discuss. All right, and now for episode 12. Carl, welcome. Thank you, dude. Right off the bat, I've been doing a deep dive into my favorite book, a little novel called Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. And he was very much influenced by Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche. And they're both German authors. So, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, connection there with the rich German literature. There's a few ideas in in Siddhartha that that I think are very directly tied to Nietzsche. And you may be, can correct me if I'm wrong, but the shadows, there's the first page, the first paragraph, they, you know, they're talking about shade. It references shadows a couple times. And I know Nietzsche has something to say about shadows. And maybe another idea that I'd like to come back to is maybe any Eastern influences over Nietzsche. But let's but let's start with with the shadows. What do we have? What's Nietzsche have to say about shadows? So I guess there's a, I guess to frame what you were saying a little bit, I would I want to point out that in the 19th century, Eastern uh, religion became very popular in Europe, especially in Germany. Nietzsche was influenced by uh, Schopenhauer pretty deeply. Um, I wouldn't say he agrees with Schopenhauer. And uh, Schopenhauer is kind of uh, Nietzsche's foil because his version of nihilism uh, is so Nietzsche is like railing against nihilism. So the shadow for Nietzsche, uh, there's a passage in uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra where um, he's immersed in the shadow. Um, and it's this idea that there is no meaning. Nietzsche opposes himself to this. To be really clear about this, I think you have to go through a process of meaninglessness to uh, get to the other side of really um, knowing what you value, right? So when you're lost, you have to be lost before you're found. Uh, for Nietzsche, the shadow though is, that's one part of it, I would say. Um, and then another part of it is more of the archetypal stuff you'd find in Jung, where it's um, integrating aspects of the personality uh, that have been abandoned uh, by Christianity um, and have been looked at as negative, like selfishness in particular. Uh, Nietzsche has a passage in Thus Spake Zarathustra, I think it's the end of part one, where he's talking about, um, is it the bestowing the virtue or uh, how you, anyway, it's how you're interacting with your neighbor. How do you be good to your neighbor? And uh, how he kind of defines selfishness there is letting all things come into you and then letting them go through you. So you have to, you have to be a great souled man before you can be magnanimous. This is the Aristotelian idea. Um, and Nietzsche is 
very in that mode. So anything which makes a great souled man, which we might call evil, uh, Nietzsche is trying to rescue those things. And that's part of shad the shadow. He's trying to rescue like things that we might call evil. What's an example of that? Being uh, hateful, uh, being capricious, the, the whole gamut of uh, things people do when they're partying. It's the Dionysian spirit. Um, so he's trying to rescue this kind of thing um, away from asceticism. Not that Nietzsche is anti-asceticism. That would also be a misconception, but he's just trying to rescue these aspects. The uh, desires. Yeah, yeah, the, the desires, right. The earthly pleasures, right. So let's transition to the um, misconceptions. Then. I, I think I also have a misconception of what Nietzsche is and isn't. I, the Nazi comparison gives, gives maybe Nietzsche a bad name or at least uh, a false idea that maybe shouldn't be so connected with him. So how, how should we kind of think about Nietzsche as just only hearing what popular culture has to say about him? Like, like what does the popular culture get right? And what are some, some of the areas where the pop culture is off its mark? Oh, we, we can blitz through these. So the horse whipping story is false. He did not go crazy from a horse whipping. He likely had a brain tumor similar to his father. His father died young. So Nietzsche likely had a brain tumor. Um, this led to him having ill health his whole life. So a lot of his philosophy is informed from his bad health. So he's, he has a philosophy of health and overcoming. Um, and it's very aspirational. And there's a lot of longing. Um, and I think you get this out of his sickness because he knows what it means to be close to death. He's constantly like he can't read for more than a couple hours a day at some points. Um, he's got these incredible headaches. So he's a very sick person. Is he is he in solitude because of his sickness or not necessarily? Yes, he is. So I, I think some of it's self-inflicted. I, but yeah, he leaves his professor post because of his, uh, his illness. I had this idea that he never did anything. He just kind of sat around and was pissed off at everything. So is Nietzsche an incel? I guess that's another one. Yeah, a little bit. Um, but I think if you're asking yourself about uh, philosophers, how many of them had kids? Like Aristotle is probably a well-balanced person. He addressed Nicomachean ethics to his son you know, he had kids. I think having kids is an indication that you're probably, you know, on the straight and narrow relatively. And yeah, Nietzsche was not on the straight and narrow, uh, but his health was such that he couldn't be. So what's another misconception? Nietzsche's mustache. Some of those photos are from when he was uh, crazy. So the later part of his life, uh, he was actually mad um, and he was taken care of by his mom and his sister. And they groomed him to look pretty wild to make him look more striking. If you look at his younger photos, he keeps a short mustache. He's very clean. So then the last one, the Nazis. Nietzsche is responsible somewhat. Nietzsche influenced everybody who was coming up in Germany, um, as well as many people across Europe um, and in the Americas, uh, less so though. Um, so yeah, so it, the question is, how much do you blame a philosopher <clears throat> for uh, the for what happens politically, right? Um, and should people not read him, right? Uh, so, what is he to blame for? Uh, really quick, looking at violence again as something noble. Um, so, you have to remember that <clears throat> after uh, Britain won the Napoleonic Wars, there was a golden age of peace in Europe. And uh, Nietzsche was living at the end of that. Um, so he was, he, he was kind of seeing uh, the end of this era. And I don't think he would have predicted the violence of um, the First and Second World Wars um, when he's talking about warfare. Uh, so there's that uh, because the, Anyway, so there's kind of a strange, so he is, he is responsible for that without. Uh... <laughs> is the Nazis or 
any European state trying to take territory any different than Napoleon or Alexander the Great or any Roman emperor? I mean, like, is is he really responsible for for people behaving the same way that people in the past have behaved? No, definitely not. But he does have. There's a quote where he says, uh, "War doesn't, or uh, war is not hollowed by a cause. Uh, war hollows any cause." So he's saying that it's explicitly a positive in terms of human development. And you can kind of see how forest fires lead to new growth. There's an argument in there. I can't necessarily quote anyone, but I, I think those ideas are maybe universal. Uh, you know, if, if you go back to America, you know, like you, you have this idea of going to war is, is good. Like, you know, like it still exists. The tree of liberty liberty needs the blood of uh, patriots. Even the start of American football, it's, uh, you know, the sport was way more like rugby. It was almost like uh, a little mini war when, you know, when the game first started, because there was, there was a, a span where there was no wars. And what were these young, young men supposed to do? There's go outside and beat each other up. Yeah, there's a, a Nietzsche quote, in times of peace, a warlike man declares upon himself. That's like a, you can translate it that way. So what is he not responsible for? I guess to get back to that question, he's not, he's not anti-Semitic. Uh, he, in later letters, uh, uh, he is saying that all the anti-Semites should be shot. He's actually not a fan of Bismarck or German nationalism. He doesn't like German nationalism. He tries to believe that he's Polish. And in order to identify with a different uh, tribe, right? Because when we talk about politics, a lot of times when someone asks you, what are your politics? They're just asking you, what tribe do you belong to in this current blood sport that's going on? And uh, Nietzsche was not interested in identifying with the German tribe. So he says nasty things about the Jews. And then he says incredibly nice things about the Jews. So if you want to, I, I think if people are interested in Nietzsche's uh, discussion of what happened to the Jews in Europe? He has a he has a good discussion of it. Um, anyway, so you that is a that's no, he's not responsible for an anti-Semitism for sure. And the fascists could maybe just be influenced by Nietzsche in the fact that that these desires I have that society maybe says are bad or or violent are actually a a good thing. Nietzsche is also for recreating morality. And there's, <clears throat> there's a relationship between fascism and the occult um, where fascism is trying to forge new values. Um, it's anti-traditional in a weird way. If you look at uh, Mussolini's, he, he makes a statement on what fascism is. <clears throat> and one of it is the spiritualization of violence. What surviving influence does, does Nietzsche have in shaping society today? Maybe anywhere, America, uh, Europe. So I think um, all of uh, what we call postmodernism or like a uh, like critical view of history, <clears throat> he's, a, he's definitely part of this movement of uh, re-examining history um, in a critical lens. Um, so he's definitely somewhat responsible for that. So like if you would, if, if you were gonna try to force Nietzsche into a tribe is Nietzsche right-wing or left-wing? Really neither, uh, because certainly um, I would say American academia is very critical. It loves doing uh, critical interpretations of history or concepts. Like Foucault is a great example of this um, with his discussion of madness. Uh, Nietzsche defines uh, multiple ways to look at history. Um, uh, I'd very much recommend, if for people who are interested in Nietzsche, I'd recommend Untimely Meditations, um, The Use and Abuse of History. It's a short essay. It's very good. Uh, it'll give you an understanding of ways to look at history. Um, and uh, Nietzsche kind of lays out how he thinks people should approach it. Does he go as far as the postmodernists and say that there, there is no truth? Everything's subjective. Okay. Oh, uh, no, no, absolutely not. Nietzsche is opposed to nihilism. So he... 
can you say more about that? What's what do you mean when he's opposed to nihilism? So why so why is that confused? Nietzsche is not a nihilist. What I mean is that Nietzsche has a positive statement of values. He has prescriptive statements. So sometimes when people people approach ethics, they want to say it's just descriptive. Like I'm just describing how people uh, look at ethics, and this is true. Nietzsche has a lot to say that's descriptive ethics. Uh, genealogy of morals is a mostly a work of descriptive ethics. Um, a lot of beyond good and evil is descriptive ethics. However, uh, I would say that thus spake Zarathustra is in large part uh, consisting of prescriptive ethics. Um, he's actually giving you advice. And uh, that's why people, I think that's why it's the most debated text. Uh, it's probably why it was his favorite, because, you know, we live for things. We don't live against things, right? That's kind of something he would say. So Nietzsche is for the earth. He's for this life. Uh, he's opposed to any uh, philosophical or religious system, which says that we justify our lives in some kind of heaven or afterlife. See, he's very opposed to the other world is what he'd kind of call it. So stemming off of that, this is going to connect back with, with my obsession with, with the novel uh, Siddhartha. The character Siddhartha is, um, denounces all teachers, denounces all teachings. He has like a very rugged in individualism. I think that's why a lot of American culture, like in the 1960s, just really fell in love with this story and book. How much of that connects with Nietzsche. He was a teacher, right? But I think he would also say that um, students are bad students if they always keep listening to their teacher. So that disagreeable, rugged individualist attitude is definitely there in Nietzsche. Nietzsche was inspired by Emerson. So Nietzsche does have American inspiration. And Emerson is also part of that, I think. So maybe like uh, Emerson without the spirituality. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely, yeah, definitely. I was also maybe seeing some some connections with William James, American um, um, psychologist, and like the so would he be a bit of a pragmatist? I think that this is a case of uh, convergent evolution. I'm not sure. I don't think he read any James. I'm not even sure. James might be like a decade ahead of him or so. So I think there's a, some convergent evolution with pragmatism. So in my mind, they're the same group. Like I think of Nietzsche more as like similar to the pragmatists in America, actually, than what's going on in Europe, really. And uh, for any listeners, uh, the pragmatist is almost like a definition of the word, like take what's useful type of approach. So it's about life flourishing. Really, that's Nietzsche's uh, definition of good, uh, and he more moreover he would define it in the furthest life flourishing. So that's the Overman or the Superman. Um, it's the most distant star that you should be aiming at. And I I don't necessarily agree with him uh, on all of these, but he thus speaks Zarathustra is a text about what would happen if you made your goal like the highest form of human life that could become right? Um, or that humanity could become. It's a semi-mystical text about that, I would say. Let's say the path of self-knowledge or the process of self-actualization, like how much is that necessary? So Nietzsche says, uh, people ask me for my way. I do not have a my way. I have a, I just had a question and I had lots of questions and I was forced to answer my own questions. And if I have a way, that's my way. And other people, I don't care if they have a different way. I'm happy with my way. I'm paraphrasing him, but this is pretty much exactly what he says. I've come across some other ideas, uh, like Bruce Lee's um, uh, really fun one, but it, you know, like there's many paths or maybe endless paths or, you know, a thousand, you know, whatever, countless an infinite amount of paths. And so, Nietzsche, I guess, doesn't really care if that's true or not. He just maybe says, like, I found one path or something. So that's some of the Eastern stuff, right? The, the Tao is not the spoken Tao, right? Like, So let's go to his, his most famous 
expression god is dead do you, can can you uh can, can you unpack that in maybe less than a couple hours or so people's highest purpose no longer makes sense to put it in god uh that's what i would say is the meaning of that so he, he has a lot to say on the subject i guess but that's to be obtuse or paint with a broad brush is that uh god is no longer sufficient uh to provide uh an organizing force for society at large. So people, I think, sometimes think that the enlightenment <clears throat> is defined uh, by something that's not a religious telos or religious purpose. And I think that's incorrect. I think that um, people's motivations are still very Christian, um, still very, uh, that's, that's the organizing force of society. And I think what Nietzsche's his discussion is largely about the problems people are going to run into when Christianity is no longer so dominant because it's an organizing force uh, for people. But when he says God is dead, people kind of laugh at him. Is he trying to provoke people with that? Oh, for sure. Nietzsche is very provocative. He's, he's definitely an edgelord. So I just recently started reading Twilight of Idols in, in Antichrist. And so I wasn't, I wasn't even sure what to make of it because I, I, it was almost seemed like it was kind of supposed to be funny, but I, I didn't think it was supposed to be funny. So it, yeah, it was, it, it was a very odd tone. Yeah. The, he's, he's definitely more bitter and acerbic in the later works. Academically speaking, you're better off starting with Twilight of the Idols just because it's made as a summary. Speaking like in spirit, if you want something that's more enthusiastic, you're gonna have you're gonna have to like read Gay Science or Thus Spake Zarathustra or Beyond Good and Evil. So the God is dead phrase. It, so the way that you explained it, it seems the best way to to wrap up existentialism is from one of Sar, Sartre's essays, and he just it's a really simple phrase. It's uh, existence before essence, and it seems that 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 kind of sums up your description of god is dead does that would you agree with that I, i'm not a reader of sartre if you go to the stanford encyclopedia of philosophy and you look up existentialism it's so confusing you'll have like after reading that page i decided i'm never going to use that term again because it has absolutely zero meaning but then i came across um sartre's essay he pretty much just kind of sums it up as existence before essence so you're whatever you're like essence whatever like who you are it comes after your existence you know instead of uh, maybe the traditional view if you if you believe in in some religion maybe besides buddhism there would be like a soul like a true self and then that essence ex is exists before you where sartre is just summing it up is saying that you exist first and then your essence um, is something that you kind of figure out once you exist. So that's my take on it. There, there's a Nietzsche quote that's something to the lines of, uh, the soul is just something about the body. The soul is an attribute of the body. It itself is not an object. Like if you talk about the soul and if you go back, it's kind of interesting, the, etymolo or, uh, the etymology of the word soul so if you go in the Bible and if you go into back into ancient Greek, the, the soul is described as an attribute quite often. It's, it's not described as a separate object. Yeah, th that's, a, that's a whole can of worms I would encourage people who are interested in the history of the concept of the soul to explore, at least in the Western discussion of the soul. Let's do uh, the one sentence summary. <laughs> I'll give it to you. The God is dead. People will need purpose that is not rationally bound by the concept of God. They will need other purpose. They will need to uh, create something new in the place of that. It seems like that was um, not that bad of a prediction as far as how society is kind of shifting away from, from religious structure. So, and you can actually see this historically, right? When, when, uh, so we call it the Roman Catholic Church today, but uh, when the Romans 
when their rights were and their belief systems were kind of breaking down and forming into Christianity, um, there's this same process was going on. So um, I think that's a good historical parallel. Funnily enough, Nietzsche is opposed to Indian religion precisely because of how structured the case system is and how it, it just creates a lack of innovation. So a lack of breaking of tablets because the, the power structure there is so solidified, it's so stable, it's, it's so lasting. And Nietzsche, if you were gonna call Nietzsche the philosopher of something, it would be overcoming. And when you overcome something, that, that, that does mean you leave something behind. So if there's a, a Western spirit of creative destruction, I think Nietzsche is definitely in favor of that. Is there a macro version of Nietzsche's philosophy? What do you mean by that? Like, what would be another macro? So this was a listener question. Overall encompassing idea. Now, now I'm kind of interpreting the question. Yes. That would be the telos or the purpose. What is your purpose? Is this for the individual or? Yeah, or oh, for the individual and group. Well, Nietzsche belongs in the category of philosophers, in my opinion. When they come to ethics or purpose, it's natural uh, ethics. So ethical naturalism. So other people in this category would be like Aristotle, although kind of because if you read Phaedo uh, by Plato and then you read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, you'll see that Aristotle does agree with a lot of the discussion in Phaedo. Um, and so Aristotle uh, places uh, the highest good in wisdom. So the Greeks had this conception of, uh, and you'll find this in Phaedo, uh, that the highest good was wisdom being with, or the soul being with wisdom. Because uh, anyway, so philosophy was the highest good. For the philosophers, they said this. Obviously, there are a lot of people living in Greece who didn't think this. That, that's the funny thing about philosophy. Is you have to remember that it's always uh, masturbatory, that like the philosophers are always thinking that they're the greatest, right? Because they're writing the history. You have to be skeptical of, and Nietzsche is part of this, this skepticism of philosophy. Um, and I think existentialism broadly is part of this, looking at it critically and saying, okay, the people who write the histories, the people who write the tablets, they are in it for themselves. Um, and sometimes they're in it for themselves in a way that they're, it, they don't even know that they're being selfish in a bad way. Let's say I, I figure out, uh, you know, the purpose of life. And then I decide that it's not, uh, that I don't need to write it down and I don't need to share it. Where does it go? It literally goes nowhere. Like it's lost whenever, whenever, you know, my remains are, are gone. Yeah, yeah. So this coming back to Nietzsche's definition of selfishness, it has to flow through you, right? So uh, let, let me say Nietzsche thinks that the meaning of life is life. It's tautological, right? So it's pithy almost to say the meaning of life is life. But you, everybody kind of agrees with that. They're like, oh, yeah, you're supposed to live life. But what does that mean? right? Like, and are you trying to go somewhere? Are you trying to become more lively? So this is why he's often uh, in like his poetry, he's talking about dancing or becoming more lively. Well, this is human life flourishing. So broadly speaking, I think most humanists agree with Nietzsche's premise about the direction of humanity, um, that it's about life flourishing um, and becoming more powerful um, which is it, which is kind of an amoral. He 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 phrases is that it's amoral because he's identifying morality as Christian morality, but it is still a prescriptive statement. Would he distinguish different types of life, different animals, uh, tree? What would Nietzsche think about the furry movement? Okay, so there's this there's this passage in Thus Spake Zarathustra where he's like. And humanity needs a terrible jungle and it needs to find the terrible animals of the jungle and become more terrible than them um, to take their claws and have their claws become human claws, right? So it's kind of, so would Nietzsche be pro furries? No, but 
I mean, there's there's something about um, identifying uh, yourself with an animal and then seeing what's best about that. But that's just an analogy. So if you want to talk about furry culture, I think that's more like a form of hedonism. Um, and Nietzsche was not a hedonist. And the source for Nietzsche not being a hedonist is kind of the last chapter of Thus Spake Zarathustra, where he's talking about, do I care about my happiness? No, I care about my work. For Nietzsche, life becoming more lively is not a form of decadence. Um, now, he, he's not anti-decadence um, because decadence is kind of, and we live in a decadent time because there's so much material well-being that people today just cannot conceive of how awful uh, it is to starve. Like, we just don't know that. Um, <laughs> so, whereas people, you know, there, there were times where people starved, you know, the potato famine was, you know, uh, it had just been uh, happening. And, uh, and it didn't affect Germany as badly because uh, they were still diversified, unlike Ireland. But, you know, if you have a monocrop, you, you can suffer. So <laughs> you have everything in, in your life. So now you can just decide to be a little furry thing. So this is actually coming back to what is Nietzsche to blame for in fascism? You can look at the um, Weimar period in Germany and you can see that there's a lot of decadence. The Nazis are in some respect a reaction against the decadence of the Weimar period. So it's kind of, it's a, and if you read Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil, he kind of predicts this. He says, you're going to have this crazy jungle and people are going to be doing whatever they want and energy is going to go. It's like, it's like a flood. There's no, there's no dike. The, the water isn't directed. It goes everywhere. The energy is going everywhere. So if nothing is true, then everything is permitted. There's, this is the death of God. So yeah, it does lead to all this uh, moral silliness. So, but he says that after that, you're going to have, that's going to collapse, right? And it's going to turn into something incredibly harsh. So the, the passage, the passage is from uh, the last part of the speak, or, uh, Beyond Good and Evil. It's on being noble, 262. Uh, the first uh, few words are, a species originates. He wouldn't be surprised by the furry movement. He, he would kind of expect that. But would he want someone to maybe instead of being um, like a house pet, like a cat or a dog, would he want them to be a gorilla or or a lion instead? Like, like you know, like would he prefer a more, uh, you know, a more manly animal versus like these little, you know, weak little things? <laughs> no, actually, I would say that Nietzsche wouldn't. So like, let's say that you're really depressed <clears throat> and that you're dying. Uh, Nietzsche is not telling you to not be depressed. There's a passage in Ecce Homo where he's talking about a Russian soldier who's shot and he's in the snow and his mind just goes into itself and he kind of curls up on the ground and just, not, not, uh, he doesn't say he's thinking of God, but it's kind of a retreat into the self, into the, the mental state of a person rather than being engaged and aspirational. So there's a sense in which uh, depending on where you're at in life, you have different things that are important to you and you should give to those things that which they deserve. So that, that's where you'd kind of say he's a pragmatist, right? He doesn't have big rules for everybody. That's the, that's the thou shalt that he's very opposed to. He doesn't like thou shalt. So to, uh, to get back to, to Nietzsche's philosophy then, so if someone was strictly trying to follow Nietzsche's philosophy, what would their life be like? What would their, what would their outcomes be like? I think that depends on the person. So like, let me give two different people. Let me give a person who gets married when they're 19 and they have three kids. Um, I think for Nietzsche, he, he talks about on man and marriage or on marriage. And he talks about uh, what he thinks is the best marriage. <clears throat> and he, he's, he says it's totally focused on the well-being of the kid. The kid should be as great as they can be. That, so for someone who engages in marriage, 
their goal then is not the love, it's not the relationship, it's the flourishing of the child and the child being able to create a life for someone else that causes flourishing, right? So there's a great chain of being, right? We're all born and we all had a mother and our mother had a mother and her mother had a mother. And this great chain of being is necessary. Like you were saying earlier, um, you have to pass things on in order for them to exist in the future. So it kind of forces morality and what we call good into the child, that you necessarily must value the future because if you don't value the future, your ideas won't exist in the future, right? It's this kind of tautological way in which good is forced into uh, the well-being of humanity or the family or uh, the generation of children. Now, this isn't to say that there are not other things you can spend your life on. If you're an unhealthy person, let's say you're, you're 30 uh, and you've had a hard time uh, just making it in the crazy world we live in, right? I don't think Nietzsche is going to tell you that you should feel guilty or anything. He's not going to put you down. He's just going to tell you, what can you spend your life on? Like, what is there, wh what can you aspire to, to create uh, human life flourishing? And even if that means sacrificing yourself. So Nietzsche is not opposed to sacrifice. In fact, he sees how um, all great hearted people, that's kind of how you spend life. Life is spent living. You know, we'll have some fun with some of these next questions as well. Would Nietzsche make a good king? Uh, what, what does good mean? No, okay, sorry, sorry, that's a bad question. What kind of king would Nietzsche be? Okay, so I think Nietzsche would be very harsh on the proletariat. Harsh as in, harsh how so? Harsh like uh, Henry Kissinger is harsh. I think, so Henry Kissinger is a big fan of Nietzsche. And if you look at Henry Kissinger's actions, he did some really fucked up stuff. But Henry Kissinger believes that he did nothing wrong. <laughs> like that, his latest autobiography. I haven't read it, but I was listening to an interview on it on the Lex Friedman podcast. And uh, it, was, it was amazing. <laughs> um, so I think some of the fucked up things you see in fascism, I do think Nietzsche would have pushed people down that that road and i do disagree personally with that kind of stuff just because i think that nietzsche's politics are just wrong in some ways but that's like a really big topic like even defining nietzsche's politics uh you have to be really careful so he would have little if any uh social welfare yeah absolutely not like okay so like far like far right uh libertarian type what's the role of government Nietzsche is a monarchist. He, Nietzsche believes in the in the aristocracy. He, 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 there's this quote, uh, it's, it, if you control F in uh, Beyond Good and Evil, it's the Sippo Matador. Uh, there's also, a, I'd recommend a podcast, the Nietzsche podcast. I got him to do an episode on the Sippo Matador. Um, but it's, it's about how Nietzsche thinks that the aristocracy, that the aristocracy is the justification of politics the actions of society are to the benefit of great men. So who would you rather have as king? Frederick Nietzsche, 19th century German philosopher, or first century Jesus of Nazareth? I, I mean, if I get to pick who's king, then can't I just be king, you know? Like if I'm the one picking, this is the delusion of democracy in my opinion. That we actually have control over this. We do have a little control. It's a would you rather. It's, you know, you have to choose one, one or the other. I think it's a pretty easy question. Oh, would you pick Jesus? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> he would take care of poor people. You know, he'd have a nice social, social welfare system. Yeah, but does that, does that make society better off in the long run? Maybe. I don't know. I, yeah, I guess that goes back to values, to, to individual values. So I actually want to comment on this. Why do I think Nietzsche's politics are wrong? I think that there's this historical process of the church recycling discarded people. And it's also part of America, right? It's the Statue of Liberty. 
So when you take a discarded person, when society doesn't value that person, that person still has a lot of potential energy, right? There's still a lot because they've got nothing to lose. So they have everything to gain, right? So the most dangerous people in society are always the outsiders because they have nothing to lose. So I think a huge substantive criticism of any kind of uh, libertarian uh, conception of how you deal with the proletariat um, I think the problem with that is just that the potential energy of society is in the people who are discarded. And the church knew that for the longest time, that they were constantly taking in all the weirdos. And so there's this big period of time where all the weirdos are sent out to uh, Poland to uh, wage uh, the crusade on Lithuania and convert the pagans, right? So you take all the disposable people and then you send them basically to a penal colony where they're at war with, you know, a foreign people. Well, that's a way of recycling people, but I think there are other ways to recycle people. So if you really, so I, I, anyway, that's my criticism. So do I, but would I want Jesus as king? I don't know about that. I, 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 I'm not hostile to Christianity, but. Okay, so this is your uh, personal opinion. Who's more controversial than uh, Frederick Nietzsche or Jesus? Oh, like controversial to the proletariat? To you, to you, you know, whatever your uh, personal opinion of, of controversial would be in uh, today's society, uh, historical society, go ahead, place it, place it however you. I think they're both a little boring. I think they're both, I think they're both sick people. So I think there's this tradition in American politics where the president had to have a kid, you know, the white picket fence, and he needed to be very normal. And I actually think there's a lot to say for that because normal people are really boring <laughs> and it's good. It's healthy. I think so. Uh, I guess so that's my controversial controversial opinion is that like the average average person uh, who's figured it out in life, uh, who has some natural self-esteem and natural uh, pride not like false pride, but the pride that comes from like working hard. I think that type of person is the best. Could you generalize what type of person is drawn to Nietzsche? Yes, for sure. Uh, atheists. <laughs> uh, so edgelords. Uh, so people who are disagreeable, uh, people, young people are drawn to him. I, I definitely got that so far. I think, uh, I think had I come across Nietzsche when I was just getting serious about about thinking and reading, I think I would have absolutely loved him. And Nietzsche is a polemicist. He makes he makes arguments that are very fierce against certain types of people. And you're if you're if you like that type of shit, you're gonna like Nietzsche. Um, supposing that you've you're already an atheist, probably because the problem with Nietzsche is you have to already agree with him to really. <laughs> engage with the text sometimes or you have to already have a lot of experience in what he's talking about in order to engage with the text i was disappointed it seems and granted i'm not, i'm only into the one book but he doesn't seem to be making any formal arguments no and he doesn't provide evidence either no absolutely not so sometimes he does provide evidence when he's, when he's talking about the laws of manu he he is he does go through the case system and you know, explain what he thinks about it, right? Or like when he's talking about the Jewish people, the history of the Jewish people, he, he is, he does give evidence there, right? But oftentimes he will make uh, statements where he doesn't give evidence, where he just assumes that you already know what he's talking about, so. So this is where someone's having the similar idea bias. When I read C.S. Lewis, I, I think he does a lot of the same things. And it drives me crazy because I don't accept his claims. <laughs> and so and so with Nietzsche, I will admit it doesn't drive me as crazy because I kind of accept the claims, but I definitely notice and get annoyed that he doesn't waste any time and energy to to prove himself. Like 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 I definitely am annoyed with that. So I think when you approach him, you need a particular thing you want to hear his opinion on. Um, and you kind of have to already want his opinion. 
or maybe not, but like, but like to at least know like what you're getting into. I think that like, that would have been helpful for me had I known that before I started, I think I could have maybe given a more open or uh, favorable uh, listening. So he's also someone you should argue with when you're reading. Uh, he doesn't want you to agree with him necessarily. Sometimes he is being sarcastic and you'll have to catch it. Um, yeah. That's why actually I recommend people when they want to approach Nietzsche, if you read uh, La Rochefoucauld's uh, Maxims, that's a better starter because it's a politics of aristocracy that's taking place in a very chaotic time in French history. Um, and La, Ro La Rochefoucauld is a loser. He's a French nobleman who loses. Uh, and he writes a memoir on all the bad behavior of the French aristocracy. So it's kind of like a muckraking thing. And uh, if you look at, and Nietzsche is very inspired by this, and these are all written in epigrams, right? Or like, uh, like Psalms. And, and Nietzsche is very inspired by this. So Nietzsche is in some sense a muckraker. Um, he is arguing for the voice that's quiet that, um, and he's just pointing out all of the bad behavior of people a lot of times. Um, especially of philosophers, right? Like there's a whole section in Beyond Good and Evil that's just attacking philosophers for bad behavior. It's uh, on the prejudices of philosophers, right? So. And then, okay, so two more uh, easy, fun questions. So who does, who does Nietzsche hate more, women or Christians? <laughs> Neither. I don't think he hates hateful. them both the same. Oh, he, he, I think, well, okay, so some, <laughs> let's give some context here. Nietzsche's father, Nietzsche was descended from a line of preachers. Uh, Nietzsche's father was a preacher. Nietzsche is a religious person. <laughs> He's just highly critical of religion. So he comes from that tradition. And does he hate women? Well, he didn't have his father. His, his mother and his sister were like the biggest people in his life for a lot of, a lot of time. And was he disparaging of them? Yeah, but I'm pretty sure they were pretty hard on him too. Yeah, so he was he was very Christian and he was very feminist. Nietzsche is kind of the Christianist Christian and the feminist that he... So what should I make of his insults? Uh, so for instance, when 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 he's assault, insulting Christians or like Paul, like he really goes off on Paul. Yeah, he really does go off on Paul. And he's calling him a little woman worse than a little woman or you know whatever you know I, uh, that's not a direct quote but but you get the sentiment well yeah i mean is nietzsche a sexist yeah he is what you can just say there is just ignore it and read the smallness of spirit he's calling he's calling paul a very petty person he's saying paul is just incredibly petty he's nihilistic he's just not interested in life he's just completely lacking uh like a roman sense of uh um, from Marcus Aurelius, it's to stand straight, not be held straight, right? So a person naturally stands straight or they're not held straight. There's a big difference. Um, if you live your life in a way that you just stand straight. Would Nietzsche be against getting fellatio from a super hot trans person? I feel like I answered this earlier with the furry question. Nietzsche's not a hedonist. I think that's a so. So would he have a problem with some with someone else? Would he? No. Would I he advise so. the other person? Nah, you probably shouldn't do that. Or, well, it depends. Like, uh, it depends where you are in your life. I think he might say. So if you're if you're the if if you're the thirty year old with three kids, then then you should probably pass. Well, that depends the whole idea of judging others Nietzsche is just not very judgmental and uh, if you look at his personal interactions with people he's never moralizing them he, he really does not like moralizing he thinks it's petty I did come across that um, it, I was a little bit surprised which I, I shouldn't have been but he was a very agreeable person in person yeah, yeah, he very, so, right, so you can almost say it's neurotic, because he's so agreeable in person, then he goes on all these diatribes when he's by himself. Well, that makes and sense, right? He also says, I'd like to point out in Eke Homo, uh, his autobiography, that you shouldn't trust sick people when they're talking. 
So he's talking about himself. He's very take it or leave it. But he wants you to taste the soup. He doesn't want you to salt the soup before you taste it. I don't know if you're familiar with that, Edison. That's good. Let's say someone that's very has little very little familiarity with Nietzsche or maybe even none. What would you recommend? Where where should they go or start? And you can kind of answer that however you think. I guess I'll just give how I got to him. Um, I read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. You read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography? Yeah, it's very short. It's very good. I highly recommend it. This got, this gets you into Nietzsche. Yeah, yeah. Let me just explain. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. So, so, and then I read Poor Richard's Almanac, or like the version of it that runs around with all the quotes. And then I was looking for where do these quotes come from, right? Like Rich, because obviously Benjamin Franklin is witty, but he didn't come up with all of these. Like they're processed through his brain. Well, these these quotes actually come from La Rochefoucauld, and La Rochefoucauld wrote maxims, right? Which is where a lot of these quotes come from. Well, some a, a fair portion of them, and then. Uh, I was just reading epigrams and I was just reading Nietzsche's epigrams. So I would recommend people start uh, if they like pithy statements and they like epigrams and they like a Cohen, they like putting something in their mouth and just chewing on it for a long time. Like uh, Nietzsche, Nietzsche gives a vision in uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra of a cow just chewing cud in a field. And that's kind of his ideal thinker because you just have to chew it you really have to know what you're dealing with. You can't go fast. Uh, Schopenhauer has a quote, you should read a few books and read them very well. You shouldn't try to read everything. You're just, you're just not going to be able to understand it. Yeah, and, I completely agree. And I'm such, yeah. uh, I'm, I don't do that so often. <laughs> yeah, so new books, I, I don't read new books. Like if you like, but I would recommend Nietzsche's epigrams. And then, uh, uh, but like, for example, the discussion of God is dead, just read the first three chapters of uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra, or the first three sections, um, if you want to understand that. Um, if you want to understand uh, slave morality versus mass morality, you read Genealogy of Morals. Uh, yeah, if you want to understand his politics, it's really the last chapter of Beyond Good and Evil, or the last, yeah, on being noble. Okay. Well, Carl, thanks a lot. Thank you, dude. I appreciate it. I hope you have a good day. Merry Christmas, man.